I'm sorry, 50 through 54. Matthew 27, verses 50 through 54. And as I mentioned last week, if you don't have access to a Bible, that's okay, because all of the verses that I am going to refer to are going to be on the screen um, this morning. I am in the third of three parts of a series that is leading us up to Easter Sunday, next Sunday. April 12th is Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, and so I am doing this short series on the crucifixion of Christ that will lead us up to that important day next Sunday. And obviously, I am coming to you by way of video again this morning because of COVID-19, because of the coronavirus. But as I have mentioned to you these last two weeks, I think it is so important for us as a church body to remain connected. I think it is so important for us as a church body, even though we're doing it remotely, that we worship together. And one of the main focuses of our worship needs to be the inerrant, infallible, precious word of God as we look at that together. So, now I realize, especially because we are doing these video services, that some of you are watching this morning, and maybe you weren't with us the last two weeks. So I'm just going to briefly review where we were these last two weeks, and then get into the text for this morning. As I mentioned, we have been focusing on the crucifixion of Christ through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. It's if we have gone back in time. And I want you to imagine with me this morning, I want you to imagine that we are part of the crowd at the cross, that we are actually there through our sanctified imaginations, that we together are witnessing the most important event in human history. Now, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, we looked at the three hours of darkness from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, from noon until three o'clock, there was darkness over all the land, the Bible says. A darkness that represented the judgment and wrath of God. A darkness that represented mankind's hopeless, helpless search for meaning. His search in the dark, his search without God. And then last week, last week we looked at Jesus' cry of agony. As he hung on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we learned that God the Father at that moment turned his back on God the Son because God is of two pure eyes to look upon sin. And we learned that Jesus took upon himself on the cross all the sins for the entire world for all time. But not only did he take all sin upon himself, but he actually became sin for us. He not only took sin upon himself, but he became sin for us. That great verse, Second Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. 
Well, that brings us to our passage today. Again, Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 54. We pick up right where we left off last week. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Well, our first point this morning is a voluntary death. The very moment that Jesus died was the sovereign design of the triune Godhead. I want to say that again. The very moment that Jesus died was the sovereign design of the Trinity. It was the sovereign design of the triune Godhead. In verse 50, it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Don't miss that, folks. He yielded. He yielded up his spirit. It wasn't taken from him. He voluntarily gave it up. In John chapter 19, as Jesus finishes his accomplished work on the cross, he says those three famous words, it is finished. In Luke chapter 23, Luke records that Jesus says at this time, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Jesus calls out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, when he had said this, then he breathed his last. The fact that he cried out in a loud voice demonstrates that he still had strength left. He was not yet to the point of utter exhaustion. He could have kept on living if he wanted to. But, but, the time had come. The time he had chosen for his death had come. The time he had chosen for his death had come. No one took Jesus' life from him. He surrendered it by the conscious act of his own sovereign will. What a truth. What an amazing truth. No one took Jesus' life from him. He surrendered it by the conscious act of his own sovereign will. All the events of the cross happened because Jesus voluntarily laid down his life. We think of that great passage of scripture and maybe some of you are already thinking of it in John chapter 10 and verses 17 and 18 where Jesus says this, For this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge, this charge I have received from my Father. Think of that first sentence of verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus is the author of life and death, and he chose the exact time of his death. In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, it says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Again, as I shared with you last week, think of how much he loves you. That he would endure the judgment of God in your place. That he would take upon himself all the sins of the entire world for all time. That he became sin for us. That he voluntarily laid down his life for you and for me. Well, our second point this morning is four miraculous signs. Luke records, or excuse me, Matthew records for us four miraculous signs that happen as a result of Jesus dying on the cross. When he comes to three o'clock, the ninth hour, when he comes to that final time, there are four miracles that take place. Let's look at them one at a time. First, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In the first part of verse 51, it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the curtain that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the temple. Now, what we need to understand, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, that in the temple, there was this huge, massive, thick curtain that separated the holy place, the rest of the temple, from the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was located. And this huge, massive curtain had woven into it cherubim, the design of cherubim symbolizing that the angels were protecting the holiness of God. And no one could go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest. And he could only go in there once a year to make atonement, to confess the sins of the people of Israel. But what is so important for us as this huge, massive curtain that protected the Ark of the Covenant, that protected the Holy of Holies, represented the fact that sinful men and women could not enter into the presence of a holy God. It stood as this great barrier that because of our sin, we could not come in to the presence of God. And so... At the time that Jesus dies, when he cries out with a loud voice and yields up his spirit, this great massive 
curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. And the fact that it was about three o'clock in the afternoon is significant because that's when the priests would have been going about their priestly duties. And imagine what they must have thought as this massive curtain is torn in two. How did it tear? How did this massive curtain get torn perfectly in two from top to bottom? And the answer is, it was a miracle of God. I believe God himself tore that curtain open. But don't miss what it represents. Oh, this is so important, so beautiful, so significant to us here this morning. It represents the fact that now that Jesus had died and he had been thoroughly, perfectly punished for all of our sins in our place, now for those who believe in Jesus, who trust him as Lord and Savior, we have access into the presence of God. The curtain is no longer there. It's been torn from top to bottom, and we can come into the presence of God. It also represented the fact that there is no more sacrificial system. No more sacrificing of lambs because the ultimate perfect lamb of God has now been slain once for all. Oh, we think of Hebrews. Hebrews 4.16. What an incredible verse. It says then, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, we can come with confidence to the very throne of God. Why? Because of Jesus' death. Because the curtain of the temple has been torn in two. And so the first miracle is the, ter- excuse me, is the tearing of the curtain of the temple. Second, The earth shook and the rocks were split. That's what it says in the second part of verse 51. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Interesting. In the English Standard Version, the ESV, it says, and behold, at the start of verse 51. In the New International Version, the NIV, and behold is translated at that moment. I like that translation. At that moment. At what moment? At the moment when Jesus died. When the moment he yielded up his spirit. At the moment he said it is finished. At that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And at that moment the earth shook and the rocks were split. There was an earthquake. How did that happen? Again, I believe strongly it was a miracle of God. God caused an earthquake. He caused the earth to shake and rocks to split at that very moment to help us to understand that even creation itself was dramatically, significantly affected by the death of Christ. It was You see, the earth is waiting for a day when it itself, the earth itself, all of creation is going to be redeemed. There's going to be a millennial kingdom. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. 
One of the most important verses in all of the New Testament on this subject is Romans chapter 8 and verse 22. And it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All of creation is experiencing the pains of childbirth even now because the earth, the earth is waiting for the time that it will experience this wonderful renewal and the earthquake, the shaking of the earth and the splitting of the rocks is a foretaste of the renewal of all things. And so the second miracle is the earth shook and the rocks were split. Third, the bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised from the dead. In verses 52 and 53, it says, the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Wow. The tombs also were open, and many bodies of the saints who had died, who had fallen asleep, were raised from the dead, and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, and they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I believe they were not only raised, but they were raised in their glorified bodies, and they start appearing to people. This great miracle takes place. It is a partial resurrection. It is a great foretaste of what's going to happen to all of us. When we die or Christ returns and we are raised in our glorified bodies. Now, I want to be intellectually honest with you this morning. There is some debate around these two verses. And the debate is, when did this take place? Did this take place at the moment that Jesus died or did it take place after he was raised from the dead? Notice it says the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many. If you have the New International Version it appears that at the death of Christ they were raised because it says many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, period. And then coming out of the tombs after his resurrection. But in the English Standard Version, the King James Version, the New American Standard Version, there's not a period, but rather a comma, continuation. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So, were they raised at the moment of his death or did this all happen after he was raised from the dead? And so that's kind of where the debate is. Personally, I believe that the English Standard Version has it correct here that Matthew is simply telling us that this happened, but it happened after the resurrection of Christ. Okay, It happened, but it happened after the resurrection of Christ. He's just including it in all that happened surrounding the cross. And the reason I believe it is this. 
because Christ hasn't been raised from the dead yet at the moment of his death, obviously. He still had to be buried and raised from the dead. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it says that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And I believe before anyone else can be raised, Christ had to be raised first because he's the first fruits. So I think what Matthew was saying here, that after the resurrection, the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, whatever side of the debate you may fall on, don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. The point is this. Through Christ's death and resurrection, those who believe will be raised to life. And this is just a partial resurrection. This is a wonderful, amazing foretaste of your resurrection. It is. And so the third miracle is that the bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised from the dead. Fourth a Roman centurion confesses that Jesus is truly the Son of God. The fourth miracle is that a Roman centurion confesses, proclaims that Jesus is truly the Son of God. In verse 54 it says, When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, and we're going to look at this in, 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 at some length here. I think this is really important. It was not only the Roman centurion, but there were other soldiers with him. So, he was the soldier leading them as the centurion, but the soldiers under them, and we don't know how many there were. It says at the end of verse 54, they, notice that they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. The Roman centurion, and understandably so because of his position of authority, gets most of the attention from preachers. But I don't think he was the only one who proclaimed it. I think they all did. However many soldiers were there with him in, under his direction. But I want you to think about this with me this morning. The Roman centurion and those with him didn't have to imagine the scene at the cross. They were there. They lived it. And as I said, notice it wasn't just the centurion. Matthew said, and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus. Now, I think it's very possible that this group of soldiers, that they may well have been with Jesus during some of the events that preceded the cross. They would have witnessed his humble and gentle demeanor while he was taunted and ridiculed. They would have seen his complete lack of anger or revenge. They would have heard him say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
They would have heard him say to the repentant thief, Today you will be with me in paradise. They would have experienced the three hours of darkness. They would have heard Jesus' cry of agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They would have felt the earthquake and seen the rocks split. They were there. And all of this was working in their hearts. And the Bible says that when they saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. Some English translations have they were terrified. The word awe comes from the Greek word phobio. I mention that to you simply because it's where we get our English word phobia. And it refers to sheer terror. Absolute panic that causes you to have a rapid heartbeat and to have profuse sweating and extreme anxiety. We would say they were petrified. They were petrified. That same word, phobia, is used to describe the disciples when they saw Jesus walking on the water and they thought he was a ghost. That same word, is used to describe the reaction of Peter, James, and John at the transfiguration when they saw Jesus revealed in his glory and heard the Father speak from heaven. You see, their fear was not so much of the earthquake as it was the supernatural power that they believed was behind it. And so their fear turns to reverence and they were confronted with the holiness and righteousness of God. Notice, they didn't run and hide, but instead they declared, truly, this was the Son of God. Folks, don't let that just pass you by. They are saying Jesus is the Son of God. They're proclaiming His deity. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 47, it says, The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Now, there's no contradiction there. I believe he said both things. It is likely those soldiers said both things. They said, Truly this was the Son of God. Truly this was a righteous man. Well, our third point is God's amazing grace. A question that's often asked about this last miracle, especially in relation to the first three, is, did the soldiers come to know Christ as Savior on that day? Were those soldiers saved that day? Well, we don't know for sure. Legend has it that the Roman centurion became a Christian. I tend to think, in fact, I strongly think that all the soldiers that said this were converted that day. I believe they came to know Christ as Savior. And you say, Pastor Tim, why do you think that? I think it because their response, their response shows the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. You don't make that confession naturally. 
in your natural state, apart from the Holy Spirit, you don't say, truly this was the Son of God, truly this was a righteous man. That is the powerful, convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And think of this. Think of this. There are all kinds of other people there. The Jewish religious leaders and others. And they continued to mock and to ridicule and remained in their state of unbelief. But not these men. Not these men. I believe what is happening here as these soldiers confess that Jesus truly is the Son of God, I believe the great divide is beginning to take place. The beginning of how the cross of Christ would divide mankind, even as it does down to this very day. Some look at the cross of Christ and they believe. Others look at the cross of Christ and they continue to mock and ridicule and walk away in unbelief. Let me ask you this morning, on what side do you fall? When you think of what Christ did for you on the cross, has it caused you to turn to him in belief and confess him as Savior and Lord, receive him as Savior and Lord, and say, truly, this is the Son of God? Or do you walk away in unbelief, indifference, apathy? If you don't know Christ as your Savior on this Palm Sunday, on this Sunday before Easter, if you don't know him as Savior, you can receive him right where you are at. You may be watching this video alone. You may be watching it with your family. You can receive Christ as your Savior. If you admit that you've sinned and need a Savior and invite Christ to come into your life, he will save you even right where you are at right now. Or maybe you want to go off to a quiet place. And ask Jesus to come into your life. Oh, that would be the greatest thing that you could possibly do on this Palm Sunday. As we think about those soldiers, what a reminder that God's grace can be extended to every sinner, even to the men who nailed Jesus to the cross. You ever think about that? God's grace is such an ocean. It is so vast and so deep that every sinner who will come to him will be saved. Even to the men who nailed Jesus to the cross. Oh my. Do not these men remind all of us to stand in awe of what happened at the cross. You know what? Your salvation today is no less a miracle than the salvation of the soldiers who crucified Jesus. Do you know that? Let me say that again. Your salvation is no less a miracle than the salvation of the soldiers who crucified Christ. Oh, if you know him as Savior this morning, I just want to encourage you 
I just want to encourage you. Think. Let me try to bring these three weeks together. Jesus experienced the judgment of God for you. Jesus took upon himself all the sins of the entire world for all time and he did it for you. He not only took upon himself sin, but he became sin for you. And Jesus died voluntarily at the exact moment that he had predetermined. He died and accomplished your salvation. Oh, folks, if Jesus did that for you, if Jesus did that for you, I guarantee you, he's going to take you through this difficult time that we are going through as a nation, as a world. You know, in Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 14, it says, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. If you know Christ as your Savior, you are sealed in Him. And He, and your salvation is not only secure, but He's going to walk with you and take you right through this. I want to clarify something that is often misunderstood in Christianity. And that is this. If you know Christ as your Savior, you're not holding on to Jesus. He's holding on to you. Let me say that again. You're not holding on to Jesus. He's holding on to you. It's an old illustration, but it's one I love. Back at the time of the great flood, when God spared Noah and his family, God didn't take Noah and his family and put them on the side of the ark and say, hold on. Hold on and you're going to make it through. No, he didn't. He opened the door of the ark, took Noah and his family, put them inside the ark, and closed the door. They weren't holding on to God. God was holding on to them. And it is the same with you. You aren't holding on to Jesus. He's holding on to you. He's always got you. We're going to close in just a moment with that wonderful song by Keith and Kristen Getty, he will hold me fast. And I want to close with this, and I know the pastors have talked about this song all the way through what we've been going through. What a reminder. He will hold you fast. He will. I guarantee it, based on the authority of the Word of God. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to listen to that song. You can just listen and meditate or sing along whatever you want to do. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving us so much. Oh, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the three hours of darkness. We thank you for Jesus' cry of agony. We thank you that Jesus voluntarily laid down his life for us. Thank you that Jesus has provided a salvation that is all of grace, that is full and free. It is available to anyone who will come to him and receive him as Savior and Lord. 
And thank you that once we know you, you seal us at the time of our salvation. You seal us with your Holy Spirit and you hold us fast. No matter what we go through, you always hold us fast. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.